So I decided to talk about um, Aditana resolution determination tonight after it came in my mind this morning and then just uh, talking with people in interviews today, maybe because my mind was just skewed that way, probably. Um, it just seemed like it was something that I could see happening in people's minds and it's, it's been a particular, it's a mental factor, right? And it's been very uh, interesting and useful for me in the last uh, few years of my life exploring it. So I just wanted to share that because I've been finding it very helpful. So resolution or determination, aditana in Pali, it's one of the ten paramis, did you know, the ten wholesome qualities of mind, of heart, that supposedly in, in the uh, mythology, whatever you want to say, the bodhisattva developed over all the eons and lifetimes, these ten beautiful qualities of heart and mind to perfection. And determination is one of them. I'm not going to list all ten just because I'll run out of time. Um, So determination is a a very interesting one, both in the broad, in the vastness, as I mentioned this morning, which I'll say again, but then in the specific moment-to-moment experience, the recognition of this wholesome quality in our mind, in our heart. As part of our meditation experience, it's enormously helpful, as well as uh, in our daily life, of course, as well. So to talk about it, determination, resolution, or steadiness of purpose. So these are a couple of different definitions from Situgu Sayadaw, who's a big Sayadaw in Burma. It can be, Aditana can be regarded as a foundation for all of the paramis, for all of the perfections, because without a firm resolution, a firm determination, one cannot fulfill the other paramis. And of course, without some kind of resolution determination, none of us would still be sitting here, would we? No, I mean, serious. Or, um, Tanisaru Bhikkhu, who talked quite a bit about it, I'll quote him quite some, he says, it gives focus, motivation, and direction to our practice, if we're specifically thinking about our practice. And Almas, who's not Buddhist, but he talks about it as the quality of being unwavering in the face of disappointment and discouragement. And some of these you might hear how they're similar to virya, to energy, and I'll talk about that in a minute, the difference, the similarities. So unwavering in the face of disappointment and discouraging gives focus, motivation, and directness to the practice or to our life and a foundational force for all the paramis, for all of our practice. So to describe it in vast proportions over time, sort of like as broad determination, broad resolve, broad aspiration, as I mentioned this morning, but I'll just tell this story again, of the period of the, the so-called Buddha before the historical Gotama Buddha that we actually historically know existed. And it said that, And I'm quoting from a very esteemed and revered scholar of Buddhism, Mr. Guy Armstrong. And uh, (laughs) in fact, why don't you give the talk? (laughs) Anyway, to use his language, four incalculables and 100,000 eons before our present age, 
which is to say a very, very long time ago. <laughs> it sort of sounds like a, a fairy tale, right? Very long ago, in a distant age, in a far distant, how does that start Star Wars? Anyway, um, so there was an ascetic named Sumedha who was practicing you know, to become an arhat. That was his aspiration, his resolve. And he heard, though, very like Bahia, you know, all kind of the same story transposed in different places. So he heard that there was a, a Buddha, self-awakened one, named Apankara Buddha in another village, and he went to hear him. And basically, just in beginning to see, to hear Dipankara Buddha, Sumedha was so inspired, as is the case in these stories, just with his wisdom, his brightness, his dignity, whatever, that just spontaneously, but very profoundly, um, there arose in him the, the realization that Sure, if he became an arhat, completely awakened, that would certainly be for his own benefit and the benefit of many others that he would meet. But if he actually resolved to become a Buddha in some future time, that would benefit so many other people so much more. So out of a, a sense of great inspiration and great compassion, this spontaneous deep resolve, aditana determination arose to... Um, do whatever it would take to become a Buddha into, in a future life. So that was, this, that was this strong resolve spreading over, as it took four incalculables and 100,000 eons. So that's the long time. That one vastness of determination, of course, has to be backed up by moment after moment after moment of determination arising in the mind and heart. And I'll, I'll come back to how he had to do that in a minute as I talk about it with us. But then as the story goes, um, Sumedha noticed the Buddha was about to walk through some mud, so he flung his body down so that the Buddha and all the Sangha could walk over him and not get muddy. And uh, so that called him to the Buddha's attention, Dipankara Buddha. <laughs> no, in a good way. And, and Dipankara Buddha recognized and kind of gave the prophet, he could tell in his, from, from looking in uh, Sumedha's, the ascetic's mind, that in fact he would become a Buddha in a future age. And had he not made that resolution, he would have become an arhat right there and then. So that's how these things end happily. <laughs> so that's the story. Why is it funny? Some guy makes this incredible, beautiful resolve. <laughs> I don't see what's funny. It's supposed to be inspiring, <laughs> inspiring. <laughs> really, I really don't know what's funny about it. Um, so that's in vast proportions. But you can see in smaller vast proportions, just whatever particular resolve or determination, you could call aditana aspiration for our own life, for our own practice. And I'll come back to that at the end, just to hold that as a possibility. We don't just have to like mush around, you know, hoping something nice happens. That we can, can really have a sense of, of purpose and direction. And this is not antithetical to all the instructions we've been giving all the time, which is why this has been helpful to me. So, a lot of what I want to do is talk about recognizing the quality of uh, resolve, 
of determination in our mind now, much like we recognize the seven factors of awakening and learning how we've talked with these other factors, when we recognize a wholesome factor and, and understand through with wisdom how it works and we begin to incline our mind towards it, we can actually call on it, you know, in times when it's appropriate and really strengthen that quality. So how to recognize it in our own minds, really important. Because it gives us the perseverance, the courage in life, in practice, to keep going. And some, well, I'll describe. So as we've talked a lot about virya, energy, that it's quite uh, a strong quality, but it's not striving. You've gotten that right. I mean, we've said that. We have said that, right, once or twice. So enormous energy can be put out. It isn't striving. It's not meant to be willpower. It's not uh, expectation trying to make anything in particular happen, which is quite difficult for us, how to put out intense energy without any idea of result at all. It just doesn't really compute, but that's what we talk about. And at the same time, we talk about this energy. We also talk about relax, observe, allow, the mindfulness of whatever arises, what we talk about as choiceless awareness, not even the attention, but choiceless awareness, the sense of, and I say it myself all the time, that awareness doesn't care what's happening. That is just really learning to radically trust awareness rather than trying to shape or manipulate our experience, right? We say all these things and mean them. And I know at times it can turn into when we're not striving, but we're so afraid of striving, or we can almost be uh, afraid or so careful not to turn our energy into expectation or some view, which I know I went on about all last week, not to have any view of what should happen. It can kind of turn into almost like a sense of, well, just whatever happens is happening, and anything I do is striving or wanting or goal-oriented or manipulating, so just lie down and let it roll over, right? And how to find that balance? How to use skillful means? How do we cultivate the wholesome? How do we recognize the klesha, even like with our attention, as Guy was saying, even meeting it fully with our attention without hating it, without wanting something different, without identifying, but at the same time without just giving up. You know, Larry Rosenberg, who is really very, very funny at times, he used to talk about sometimes we just get so like, don't give anything any trouble. We should massage the calaces. Just let them be comfortable. Don't get up, you know. And so we can go on the side of like just fluffing around and, and not really know how to, how to bring clarity and strength and power really to the virya without using wanting and, wanting and anger, right? Mostly when we think about, often when we think about how to do something with a lot of force, that's when we can come with ill will, with anger. I think, didn't Joseph say sometimes, sometimes anger feels good. This sense of energy 
this sense of our, our attention, our energy is all collected and focused, and by gum we can do something. Unfortunately, what we're doing isn't just the thing we're doing, we're cultivating aversion and suffering, but that's you know, a sidetrack. So to learn that there can be enormous collectedness of energy, resolution, um, to really do something clearly in a wholesome way that's not kalesis. So you all know this. It's not like some magic thing, but just to really bring our attention to it is why I want to talk about it. So simple example, which we've often said, when, you're, when the patterns of thought are coming in again and again 7,000 times, you've seen them. We've talked about this a lot. I will not go to cowboy dharma. But just to say, not now, that sense of not now, you know what it is? When it's not aversion, it's not fear, and it's not kind of not now, but this, this real sense of, no, I don't need to go there. You've had that experience, right? At least once. Something starts in your mind, no, I don't need to go there. And sometimes some people were telling me today, it's amazing. No, I'm not going there. And the whole thing goes away. You're like, what? You really didn't need to go there. It's amazing. That's a quality of determination. Or one way I explore, you're really tired at night. And the metta sitting's over. And your mind's saying, oh, just go to bed. But there's this sense you just make a simple resolve in the moment. I'm just going to do one more walking meditation for 20 minutes. You're not making some huge lifetime commitment. But just this sense of, no, I'll just do it. And that's really what it feels like. Just do it. It's not like, oh, I'll walk. And then you start walking and every minute, should I or shouldn't I? I'm really tired. Maybe I should go to bed. No, I'll keep walking. Now, should I or shouldn't I? Eh, why am I doing it? And then you go, by God, I'll just do it. I don't care. And you stomp up and down. Neither of those are, are determination, right? They're not. But that sense of, just do it. And then whatever comes up in the 20 minutes comes up. You're tired. You're dizzy. You're aversive, you're yawning, you're incredibly filled with light and constant, whatever comes up, you just do it. There's not all that dithering. There's not all that what or this or that, all that energy that gets just blown away. It's all collected in the simplicity of just doing. You don't have to think about it anymore. And there's that, that simple willingness to be there. That's what I mean by the quality of determination of Aditana. One thing, one way of noticing how it feels, because this, this um, quality of determination, and we talk about it in terms of the Abhidhamma, in terms of different mental factors, it's one of those factors that's so-called ethically variable, you know, we've talked about others like concentration, for example, which means in itself, it's not either wholesome or unwholesome, but it takes on the, the quality of the other factors that are in that moment of chitta, that moment of psyche that come together with it, as determined by it. So the quality that just Adimoka has as an energy, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, this is the definition from the Abhidhamma. Literally, I like it because I, I can feel this in my mind when I, when I imagine it. Literally, it is 
this quality is the releasing of the mind onto the object. So it's like a quality of decision or resolution. It's not kind of, should I go there or should I not go there? It's like, just releases. It just lands there. So it has the characteristic of conviction and it manifests as decisiveness. And I think the best, really the best um, slogan for it is just do it. It's Nike's, just do it. Utejaniya really likes that. In fact, he has a big picture of the Nike swoosh and sometimes he'll just hold that up for people, you know. Just do it. So you see how that could be wholesome or unwholesome. So here we want to bring it into the realm of the wholesome, you know, just do it. And so how to recognize it as a wholesome state, as a skillful state. And one aspect of how it feels, which this is me, and then I'll talk about some ways Tan Jeff describes it, Tanasaro Bhikkhu. One way it feels is it's, you, you can feel as if the energy, the mental energy, it just kind of comes together. It aligns, you know. It's, it doesn't have to be super heavy or strong, but it just, it comes all together and there's a sense of calmness, a sense of a peace that goes in it. You just give attention to that, you just do it. Very simple example, um, in bed in the morning and the bell goes off, or you wake up even better at four and you're awake, sort of. And the mind is going, should I get up? Or shouldn't I get up? I could get up, it's pretty awake, but you know, then I'll be tired later. Yeah, I can, you know what I'm saying. Back and forth and dithering and should I or shouldn't I? It's good for me or it's not good for me. And however long we're there going back and forth, trying to analyze just what I call dithering. And it leads to a, a loss of energy, a kind of doubt and a kind of vacillation, a kind of weakness in the mind. And I've noticed this almost every day of my life when I have to get up. <laughs> it's not my favorite. That one moment in the day is not my favorite moment. I'm not one of these, yes, another day. You know, I know some people like that. But, <laughs> but I really learned this, and it's amazing. The lying there, the should I, and how do I feel, and five more minutes and all of that, it's, it's not pleasant. When I just tune into the quality of determination, which is just get up. It's really like that. It's like all the energy comes into, it's not a should, it's not aversion, it's not judgment, so just get up. And instead of the energy going into all those other thoughts, it all comes together and I just get up. It's just like that. It really is just like that. It's not like that's some wonderful thing, but watching that quality, it's just a simple moment. It's not a big deal. But learning to recognize it, and then learning that we can actually call on it. So the mind is much more trainable than you might believe sitting here. It's really, you know, we can learn to recognize the wholesome, incline the mind to the wholesome. And wholesome brings other wholesome factors and they strengthen. That's the whole gist of meditation practice, right? Of the the bojangas, of the uh, factors of enlightenment. And with this as well. So learning, learning simply to recognize it. Tanisaro Bhikkhu talks about 
the four qualities that come together when it's wholesome determination as a parami. So I just want to give some simple example of these. So it, it comes together with uh, wisdom, with panya, with some sense of clear seeing. It doesn't not have to be the wisdom of an arhat, but the wisdom of clear seeing in that moment. Then with truth, truthfulness, satya, honesty, with relinquishment, non-clinging, and with a calm or peace in the mind. Uh, a clear, a wise resolve comes together with these things. So let me give you a very simple example because it, it, so it doesn't sound so um, abstruse. So say you make a, a very simple resolve here on retreat. You think, uh, I, out of a sense of wisdom, you think I really would like to work with steady and continuity a little bit. Now, it's wisdom rather than wanting or comparing what someone else is doing or thinking my, my mindfulness stinks today, so I've got to do something better. But in a balanced mind, you make a resolve. Say, okay, from the 8.15 sit in the morning until lunch, I'm just going to very steady. I'm going to sit. When I'm done with the sitting, I'm going to go walk. When I'm done with walking, I go sit. I'm going to really work with steadiness of attention in the, in the so-called transition times and make that my resolve is not that you can't resolve to be mindful every moment. That would not be wisdom, discerning wisdom. But going to resolve to really use this time like that for this week. Right? So that's, by the way, it's not a bad idea. So that's a resolve that could be made with wisdom, depending on your particular circumstances, coming out of a sense of the value of, of mindfulness and where you're at in your practice. And then in terms of working with the resolve, we meet, it, we meet ourselves with a sense of truthfulness, which is one of the other paramis. In other words, of course, mindfulness has this quality of truthfulness anyway, just recognizing things as they are. So it's kind of like we don't kid ourselves. We don't say, well, I'm going to do that starting at 10, but first, just today, I really need a nap. But then tomorrow, and at 10 o'clock, I'll start it. And then the next day we conveniently forgot we took a nap and we really think we've, we've been doing it, you know? Little stuff like that. Just noticing so that we have a sense of truthfulness to ourselves as not to anybody else to really look and see what we're doing. And if, if somehow we can't do it, really can't do it, then keep bringing in the mindfulness, the truthfulness, and see why, you know? Sometimes we do have to make adjustments. The relinquishment is obvious. Relinquishment is just really non-clinging. That when we have a particular sense of resolve or determination, of course we don't cling to the other activities that we give up in that time. You know, We don't cling to all the uh, other things that we wish we were doing. And if mental states come up of, oh, just be nice to yourself and go have a tea. Yes, for you. We don't cling to those either. We see it, we acknowledge it, and we just stay with our resolve. And what comes when it's a wise resolve and we're meeting it you know, with truthfulness and wisdom and, and non-clinging is that it comes with a sense of calm, a sense of peace. If we're making a resolve and in really trying to do it, we're getting more and more agitated more and more upset, or more self-hatred, or more aversion, or more restlessness, there's something off about it. 
it's not as wise or as clear or the motivation maybe we're not quite seeing clearly. So for example, one obvious example, the smaller, for now we're back to Gautama Buddha in at least our historical era. Before he became the Buddha, when he made that after all his years of very ascetic practice and all the things he'd been through, the night of his enlightenment, supposedly he sat under the bow tree and made that resolve, right? I will not get up until I've completely made an end of suffering, or whatever he said it to himself. Okay? I've always thought that is really interesting. That's a very powerful resolve. And then there's this story about all the armies of Mara and all the doubt and everything he went through. But what I think is interesting is that he had been through how many eons of lifetimes as a bodhisattva and how much very sincere, intensive practice in that lifetime before he sat under that tree and made that resolve. So there was a sense of discerning wisdom that he knew in some way that was a reasonable, a possible resolve. It was like made at the right time, a sense of the broader situation. And that can cut both ways. We don't want to, I don't want to tell you, you know, don't make a strong resolve. If you feel it's time for you to sit under the Bodhi tree, or you can sit under this, and make that resolve and not get up until you're really free and you have some sense that's possible. I don't want to squash that. On the other hand, for me, I know if I was to do that, probably doesn't feel like it would quite be based in discerning wisdom. That's certainly not tonight, based on, you know what I mean? It's like, and it's not to put oneself down. It's just to see clearly what's possible. Another way we can can notice with smaller resolves, say um, you're feeling uh, your mind, your body's incredibly restless. You're just that kind of restless all over, thoughts going all over. You come in and you sit down. And you you make the resolve, you know, I'm just going to be with this. Mindfulness can be with it, however it comes. I'm sure we've all made resolves like that. Now, in terms of it really being a resolve, the resolve isn't I'm going to sit here and the, and the, the restlessness will go away. That's not a, from discerning wisdom, because that's not in our control. But to sit and say, okay, I'm just going to sit here. And as Jack Cornfield says, I'll be the first person to die of restlessness. But I'll just sit here and be with it. So that's the resolve that could be from wisdom. And how you know that it's from wisdom, not from wanting or from ego. Because we could come in and sit down and say the same thing. But it's got that aversion behind it, you know. Or it's got that, by God, I can do it. If that person there can do it, I can do it, you know. If I, you know, and... It feels like resolve, but it's tinged with um, kalatia. It's tinged with meing and myeing and so that and in order to and wanting and aversion. And the two experiences will be very different in that case. So with the sense of resolve, I'm just going to be with this. It gives the courage, the strength, you know, that alignment of the mind to just be here. And there's a calmness with it. The restlessness isn't calm, but the mind isn't like, oh my God, there's no way I can do this. This is impossible. Oh, maybe I should get up. All that dithering, it's just not there. And when it comes up, that's just included in the resolve of just part of the difficulty that we just stay with for this sitting. 
But when it's, it seems like resolve, but it's really willpower or aversion, there won't be that, that kind of calm. There won't be that peace, you know. It'll be more and more and more of a struggle. It doesn't mean we weren't really sincere when we make a resolve and it's tinged with Kalatia. As we know, we just can't always tell. So this is how we learn. This isn't to say you're right or you're wrong or you can't do a good resolve because this is just another way that you're hopeless. It's to really explore and see, to learn when it's wholesome and when it's not. So we can call on this, not only in our retreat, but in our lives. You know, it's really, this is the discerning wisdom, the willingness to look. And we can call on it. As I said, I've been exploring this a lot in in practice too, but also in my life. And um, just to give you an example, it really... It was really a strong example for me of working with this resolution as a factor in my mind. A couple of years ago, I had taken taken a few months off, some for retreat, but also I managed to carve out three weeks where I could, for some reason, I've always wanted to study German. So I had carved out three weeks, and I was going to the Goethe Institute in München, and it was hard to organize all of that. My German is like non-existent. So I'd organized that. I was staying with a friend. And um, so just given the variables, I was a month class, but I was coming a week late, which they'd given me permission to do. And you take this little test. And I, like, I knew like a little bit of German here and there from all my years going there and my friends, but completely no kind of structure, no kind of grammar, just a little of this and that. So they gave me some little test and put me in not the beginner's class, which was a big mistake, but the second class. And then I came in a week late. So I go, la, la, this is going to be fun. And I walk in, and, uh, okay, the age range in that class was from 16 to 23, and me. (laughs) And uh, these kids were, you know, all there gung-ho to study, and they were already a week into it. And it's just all in German. And I was sitting there, I had no clue. I had no clue what the teacher was talking about. I couldn't follow what we were doing in the workbooks. And... I was like back into the horrors, you know, of, of, of school. Only worse, because I was always okay in school. And this was like, oh my God, I don't know what the heck they're talking about. I don't know what they're doing. And I have to ask these kids who like, they don't want to talk to granny. They just want to, you know, <laughs> talk to each other about drinking beer in the English garden on the weekend. That was really all they talked about. We didn't have too much in common. And, <laughs> and it was like, wow. So the first day, I was just blown away, you know. And then I'd go off, and I'd work, and I'd work, and I'd work, and then I'd come back the next day. And it was, it was really fascinating to see the junk that came up in my mind. I thought, wow, I didn't know this stuff could still be triggered, you know. And some days it was really, you know, awful. Some days I kind of enjoyed it. Then I'd try to say something in class, you know, and I was like the worst speaker because I really didn't learn how to speak and... Anyway, I just kept going like that. And after two or three days, I'd get up in the morning, i think, why am I doing this? You know, there's apps, it's totally for me. You know? Nobody else in the world cares if I do this. If I never go down there again, none of them will care. Why am I putting myself through this? You know? But I really, I called in resolution, I said, no. First of all, I just really wanted to do it. And whatever I do, I'm going to learn. And it's just... Go through with it. So if it's a little difficult, so what? So unpleasant mind states come up, so what? 
You know, I gave myself a little talking to, and I got clear, yeah, I do really want to do it. And so then, just every morning, I'd get up and say, just, I would just sit there and just call on resolution. And all the should I go or shouldn't I go just would go away. So I made the resolution, not only would I go every day, I would never leave early, I would never miss class. I, I did. I did every single thing, you know. And I did learn a lot. No, I still can't speak German. But the main thing I learned, it was an amazing kind of retreat for me about the power of resolution in the mind. Not just to do something, but the calmness that comes with it, the clarity, just a sense of, yeah, now this is what I'm doing. And some days it was fun, some days it wasn't, but whatever comes up is just the practice. We just bring the mindfulness, we bring the resolution to it, and we just go through it. There's always going to be obstacles, obstructions, difficulties. Whatever comes up, as you know, is the path. And resolution's like, oh, okay. It was like such a, a wonderful support and tool to call on. And it's really palpable. You can really experience. So I, I just want to offer that. And, and the more we get to use it, then we can really call on it here in our practice as well. And as you'll have noticed, we really need it here sometimes, right? For really pretty much everybody. Once in a while, someone has a retreat that's most of the time calm, bliss, happy, whatever, and they don't feel like they need resolution. And that's you know wonderful for that retreat. It sets up a lot of suffering for later retreats. <laughs> it really can. I mean, I have a, a dear friend, I haven't seen him in years, but his first retreat was like that. And the next 10 years, you know, the next 10 years were like so much suffering because he never had a retreat or even a day of practice that came anything close to that first one. You know, because you think that's how it's supposed to be, right? And all the rest is just hopeless. It's just supposed to be cruising. Well, mostly, it's not. And as you'll have noticed, you know, there's times for all of us in almost every retreat, and not just in retreat, in our life, where it just gets really difficult for a whole variety of reasons or with a whole variety of experiences um, where it either can feel like we just hit the wall Maybe our expectations aren't being met. There's a lot of reasons I'll talk in a minute. It's too much dukkha. But the commitment we're making to this radical uh, mindful awareness, the sense of radical presence with whatever arises in our mind, in our body, in our heart, moment to moment, as maybe you've seen it, it can call up, take us to places we never would have expected. Some beautiful, some like really confusing, some like you can't imagine there's any way this could be useful to be wallowing around in this stuff, you know. And so, of course, we need mindfulness and um, virya and faith and confidence and all. But here is where resolution is a quality that we can really call on a lot. when it sends the sense of our safety net, I like to call it, starts to fray or starts to go away. The safety net can be, you know, just the way you've gotten comfortable being in your life, 
even if it's not a happy way, you know, we're comfortable with it. Or on retreat, there can be what I call a kind of a a safety net, a comfort zone, you know. And there's all kinds of ways that we can keep falling into a comfort zone, maybe with um, how long you sit or how much you sit and walk or what time you have tea or how much you sleep or who you can sit next to at lunch and who you can't sit next to at lunch or where you do your walking or what mental states are acceptable and workable and which ones are not, you know? Or just our little habits that we get into and we don't even recognize the views, of course, which I talked about last week, and how when our comfort zone starts to fray, how really unsettling that can be, how difficult that can be. We're all going to come on times and hopefully more than once Hopefully, sometimes even often, I mean it hopefully, where it's like what I call where we're hitting this wall, where our mind thinks either I can't do this or I don't want to do this. Have you ever come to a place where you say, if freedom means having to give up this, I don't want any part of it. Have you ever had that? Even if this is just the second muffin at breakfast. <laughs> sometimes it's that you know, kind of mundane. If freedom means I have to always watch what I'm eating, to heck with it. That's a silly example. But have you noticed things like that in your mind? Or the mind projects, if freedom means I don't have any more attachment to my partner and I can't be in relationship anymore and we can't live together and we can't be in another, then forget it. I don't want anything to do with it. You know, we just, we go down some road. If equanimity means you can't tell the difference between pleasant and unpleasant, who wants to live like that? You know? It's all some dull gray. I don't want that. And we subtly pull back, you know? Or sometimes it's just, if I have to look at this self-loathing one more time, I'm just going to explode. It's impossible. I can't do it anymore. We all have mental states I can't do it anymore. That's just a mental state. Ajahn Sumedho said this thing I thought was very funny. He was talking about some really unpleasant experience when he was in Thailand. I think I just get to the point where he said, this is unbearable. I just can't bear this another moment. Have you ever reached that place? I remember one, one practice period in Burma some years ago where I would, this mental state would keep coming in of this is completely overwhelming. It's totally overwhelming. I, and I remember that some image would come. I can't remember what. And be, I cannot take another step. It's completely overwhelming. I would totally believe it. And then the tomato would say, you say, I can't bear this another moment. And then I'd see that I could. You have another moment? Oh, yeah, okay, well, I could just be with this another moment. And so when, when after some point with that overwhelming state, I suddenly realized, oh, because I'd say, what's overwhelming? I, I, couldn't, I didn't even know what was overwhelming. Something was overwhelming. Then I realized, oh, this is just a mental state. It's overwhelming. Overwhelm is a mental state. So that's the wisdom coming in that can lead to resolution. Oh, it's a mental state. As soon as I know it's a mental state, I know from my own experience, a mental state is a combination of thoughts and mental feelings and physical concomitants. And whatever the mental state is, it comes, it goes. And it's, I can be with it. I know that. 
And so as soon as I saw that, there's the resolution coming from, oh, okay, overwhelming. This really feels overwhelming. It still feels overwhelming. But the resolution, you can just be with it. So I often ask myself when that comes in, oh, this is unbearable. I say, well, what actually is unbearable about this? That's a, a question that just directs the attention back in. Go, okay, you can just see it. A very simple form of resolve. Or sometimes, as I said last time, the, the sense of hitting the wall comes when we are starting to experience the unfamiliar in our practice, that familiar sense of who we are, our personality patterns. And sometimes when what we would think is a freeing insight arises, you walk into a situation, I'm making this up, no one said this, you walk into a situation, say in the dining room, where normally you would be filled with self-consciousness and embarrassment, and you walk in and it's just not there at all. There's just seeing and hearing and seeing and hearing and smelling, and there's no sense of me at all. And the actual experience is just a relief. That burden, that exhaustion of self-creation over and over isn't happening. And then something clicks in and, oh no, how could I live my life like that? What about me? What about, you know, let's put on that old coat again that's so familiar, that's so comfortable. It's almost like, you know, we want to go back to the garden, the so-called pleasure garden, even though it wasn't so pleasurable. What about... Who will I be if that impatience goes away? How will I be if I don't have this suffering story to relate to anymore? If I don't, as Punjaji used to say, you don't have to carry your whole past around with you on your shoulder like a corpse. Just being alive and fresh in the moment. But then who am I, you know? Chogyam Chungpa had a wonderful phrase called nostalgia for samsara. (laughs) I want it back. It's so familiar. <laughs> and we're all going to hit places like that, you know? And this is where resolve, just learning how to have the resolve to just stay with it without knowing where it goes is so important. Because freedom from clinging, the freedom the Buddha is talking about, radical moment to moment awareness. It really is uncompromising. And with all of our best intentions and all that we've read, and I'm including myself in this, and all that we know, our mind really can't imagine that from what we know now. It can't. We want to know what we're going to experience and how it's going to be and what does it mean and kind of, you know, get a a landscape ahead of time, which to some extent is helpful. But in the ultimate level, it's like, ah, each moment has to be completely fresh, opening to the unknown. And in the moment when there's the resolve and the clarity and the wisdom to do it, it's so freeing. But in the moments when there's not quite and we want to know, it just freaks us out. Oh, I want to know what's going to, don't tell me, I want some sense. And so that's when bringing in The sense of resolution, not about an expectation or this will happen, but just to have this sense of first the broad aspiration and knowing that these scary, these difficult experiences or these uncomfortable experiences, these not knowing experiences, whatever comes from the inside or the outside, it's what's happening now. And so it's part of our path. It's all part of our path. We never know, and each of us 
our own path shows up different from everybody else. That's why mana, comparing conceit, I mean, it's very subtle. We all experience it a lot. But it's why it just makes no sense, you know? What's happening in this particular mind stream at this moment is different from what's happening in that, in that one, or that one, or that one, or yours yesterday compared to today. But we compare because we want some kind of certainty, you know, that no, just this. So we never know how our path will go. But the determination, both in the bigger sense of aspiration and then bringing that into the willingness to just show up with this courage, with this not shrinking back from whatever happens, whether it's external circumstances or internal, is a wonderful, a wonderful support on our path. And we couldn't do without it. Just want to tell you a, a, a little story from of someone whose determination really inspired me when I read his autobiography. There's a um, Chan master, Master Shen Yen. He died about three years ago. He was Chinese, originally from mainland China, but fled to Taiwan in 1949 when the communists uh, won the Civil War. And I sat with him a bit in Switzerland and a bit. He had a place here in upstate New York. He's a huge, huge, he's huge in Taiwan. He's sort of like the Dalai Lama of Taiwan. But we didn't realize that meeting him here because he was so simple, loving. He just had the most loving, relational heart, very interested in each person, very kind, very thoughtful, very simple, Um, just really this wonderful being. And then we find out later he's a huge scholar, has like tens of thousands of followers in Taiwan, a wonderful being. And so um, when I read his autobiography, he talks about just his life very straightforwardly. So he's born in great poverty in China, again, in the 20s or the 30s, I don't remember. Very, very poor, a lot of privation. And he became a Buddhist monk quite young, you know, partly because he had no, you know, to have a way to eat, a place to live. But he was very um, committed, really very inspired by being a Buddhist monk. And so from the 20s on and 30s, there was civil war. In, in China, so great hardship, uh, often hard to have anything to eat, lots of privation. Uh, and at 1949, when the Civil War ended and basically the communists took over, he realized that no one was going to be allowed to remain monks and the monasteries were being destroyed. And the only way he could get out and get to Taiwan was if he joined the Taiwanese army, because then they would give him transportation to Taiwan. So he's a monk, a deeply committed Buddhist monk, but he knew he couldn't be one staying in China, so he did what he needed to do, which was to join the Taiwanese army and go to Taiwan. But it wasn't so simple. He he was very committed to nonviolence, and so he ended up with a job where he didn't have to perform violence. He was committed to that, but he couldn't get out of the army. It wasn't like he could get over there and say, okay, thanks, you guys, now I'm checking out. He couldn't get out of the army. And it was well over 10 years. But he said the whole time he was very clear that in my mind, in my heart, I was always a monk. So I couldn't wear the monk's robes, but in my mind I lived as a monk to the best, you know, he performed his duties. To him being a monk meant being a vegetarian. So usually he would never eat meat, which meant that 
he was almost starving a lot of the time. And he had very poor health, very poor health. So he would also use discerning wisdom when he was flexible enough to see when he was actually starving and his health was so bad he was going to die, he would eat a little meat. But he, he took that on as um, having performed something that was unwholesome, unskillful. And later, when he was finally able to get out of the army, he, he for him, doing prostrations was a great way of purifying his heart and mind. So he did like endless prostrations to purify what he thought were his unwholesome actions. That was his commitment in his way. But so he found a way out after 10 years of having no teacher, of uh, having no other support to be a monk. He was living as a secret monk in the army. And he said, this is from him, looking back, I realized that if I did not have a very strong determination to stay a monk and to return to monastic life, I probably would not have succeeded because getting out of my particular branch of the military service was nearly impossible. But he just had such a dedication. He would spend every little short vacation he had, he would go find a Buddhist master and go in the monastery there in Taiwan and study with him, even though it was very, very difficult. Amazing being. And when he finally got out, he just went into six years of retreat in a cave on his own and then just became this great scholar. Great determination. But the most softest, kindest, loving person. Very, very uh, inspiring to me. The quality of aspiration and determination. So as Tanisaru Bhikkhu says, for, for me that story highlights, this is from Tanisaru Bhikkhu, in terms of determination the importance of establishing wise priorities or aspirations in our practice, in our life, and then staying true to them, regardless of the temptations to sacrifice them for lesser ends. So this is just personal for each of us. And then skilled determination begins with discernment, with wisdom, and continues with it in continuing to make wise decisions. So I just want to say now in terms of the bigger determination to encourage all of us not to shrink from, not to feel too, you know, caught in sense of self, that to shrink back from really having a sense of what's a deep and wise determination, resolution, aspiration for you in your life, in your practice. And as Tan Jeff says, you know, it really is important to establish a clear aspiration and then call on determination, which strengthens our energy, which strengthens our mindfulness, which leads to wisdom. And when we see, oh, I really can do this, our faith gets stronger again. And that faith, again, gives us confidence and willingness to do, which gives determination and mindfulness. And it all just circles around and supports each other. The wholesome factors bring each other along and each supports the next. But having a sense uh, of what's really your deep resolve, your determination, I think it's so important. You're working so hard here. And I imagine, I know for me, there's certainly times when you're putting in everything you've got, but you forget why the heck you're doing it. You know, it gets kind of dry and dull or... We're doing it to get more mindful. Why? Why exactly do I want to be more mindful? And sometimes having a larger sense helps with the resolution not to get there, but to come back to be present with this moment now. 
It gives us the determination, Tejaniya likes to say, never give up. Never give up doesn't mean holding to an expectation, but means whatever arises, not to settle just for something good enough. For something, okay, that's, that's enough practice, that's good enough. I'm not suffering as much as I was, let's go home. You know, I used to do that a lot. Then you find out, guess what, you know, <laughs> it comes with you. But never give up. Moment by moment, really bringing that quality of determination. As the Buddha said, a couple of things he said, two things I never lost sight of. Not to shrink from the struggle, not to shrink from the path, and not to rest contented merely with wholesome states of mind. And these wholesome states of mind are great, but not to rest contented. So for for all of us, having a sense of what the greater aspiration is, and that gives us this determination to keep aligning ourselves with it. And whatever comes up is our path, and it'll be different. What What my path is is different from anyone else's. So another story I like about determination and path. There's a, probably some of you have seen this, this video that was made a few years ago with Sony Rinpoche and some Western women who went to visit some nuns in Tibet called the Nang Chen nuns that Sony Rinpoche had uh, historically been taking care of. And so during uh, the Cultural Revolution, the 20 years of the Cultural Revolution, these nuns had a monastery way up high in Tibet. And of course, in, in the Cultural Revolution, the nunnery was destroyed. And the nuns had to disperse. And different things happened for different ones of them. So some of the nuns um, died. Some of them were put into work camps. Some of them went back to their nomadic tribe, their nomadic families. Some managed to flee high up into caves. And all of them, though, in their different ways, because they came back together after these 20 years, in their different ways, they described how in their path, in their heart, similar to Master Sheng Yen, they kept their path of being a nun. So the ones who went back and lived at home, they had to disrobe, and they couldn't out loud um, do any of their chanting or any of their practices because the communists were so on the alert for that that they would be arrested, their family would be arrested. So they were being secret nuns, nuns in hiding, you know, but secretly they were keeping their practice, their determination going. Same with the ones in the work camps. The ones who went way, way high up into the caves had incredible privation. Some starved to death, many were incredibly ill. But in whatever way, whatever circumstances came, the sense of determination was just flexible with the circumstances but really holding true to what is the key, what's the most important, what helps them wake up. And so this video was they were going back with Sony Rinpoche to visit the nuns who were now um, allowed to come back and they were rebuilding this nunnery. I mean, you know, way, way up high and they're hauling these giant, you know, stones by hand and wood, you know, up these incredible mountains. I mean, I couldn't even walk up the mountain and they're hauling it up and building these building the nunnery back again. And this is how they were describing their different ways of 
holding to, to their aspiration, holding to their determination. And then each, it's moment to moment how determination, aditana, manifests in relationship to this particular moment with wisdom, with truthfulness to ourself, and with an element of calm or peace because our heart's in alignment with what's really true, with what's really important. And if it's not and we get all confused, great. That's part of the path too. We bring in awareness with that. Oh, and the, my favorite part of that, of course, is that they took at the very end, they allowed the, the women videoing to go up and see the most oldest nun, who they said, she's the most enlightened of all of us. And she was lying in like a little bed. And I mean, who knows? She looked 120. Who knows? Maybe she was 40. But she looked really old and had had a really hard life. And she couldn't walk anymore, so she just lay in that bed spinning her prayer wheel. And it was just one of these beings, you know, that just incredible light beamed out of her eyes, even in the video, and she was smiling. And she said, well, I just lie here and spin my prayer wheel, and all day and all night all I do is think, may all beings, wherever they are, may they be happy and liberated. But wow, what a life, huh? Our lives can take so many different ways. It's not about what it looks like, but it's a don't be afraid to come to whatever resolves true for you and then call on all the tools we have, moment by moment, just in this moment, to help us keep aligning. And resolution's an amazing tool. So I just want to read three quick things. One from the Dalai Lama. He was talking to some Western monks and nuns, and he looked out and said, oh, I see you're really, you're so dedicated. He said, one day you too will become bodhisattvas in reality. And so whatever obstacles there are, however long it takes, do not be discouraged. And that's true for us. Whatever obstacles, however long it takes, do not be discouraged. Just in this moment, we call on resolution. And this famous from the Buddha describing aspects of the third noble truth, one who's awakened. This is not to compare ourselves, but to to see that aspirations can go as high as is possible, not just to feel good. And one who has considered all the contrasts of this earth and is no more disturbed by anything in the world, the peaceful one, freed from rage, from sorrow, and from longing, has passed beyond birth and decay. This I call neither arising nor passing away, neither standing still nor being born nor dying. There is neither foothold nor development nor any basis. This is the end of suffering. Therefore, the purpose of this holy life does not consist in acquiring alms or gain or in honor or fame, does not consist in gaining morality, concentration, or the eye of knowledge. That unshakable deliverance of the heart, that is the object of the holy life. That is its essence. That is its goal. So let's just sit for a moment.
from Dingo Can't See. Do not forget the teacher. Pray to him or her at all times. Do not be carried away by thoughts. Watch the nature of mind. Do not forget death. Persist in dharma. Do not forget sentient beings. With compassion, dedicate your merit to them. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.